The reading today is from Matthew 28, uh, select verses in that chapter. Um, I'd ask everybody to join me when we get to verse 18 for the Great Commission. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where you lay. Go quickly, tell his disciple that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with great fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go to tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Good morning. All right. Um, over the past uh, few weeks, we have been looking at the reliability of the biblical text that we read from. Um, because these texts lay the foundation uh, of, of the events and the teachings that undergird what Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 calls our hope. Need a cursor, there we go. This is the text we've been looking at over the past few weeks that is very related to our theme of mission this year, being a sent people. Peter says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as always, uh, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense or to give a reason, or to give an explanation, depending on the version you're using. For what? For the reason, for the hope that is in you. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. This hope that we have inside us, that is based on the gospel of Jesus, is something we're to be ready to defend. And yet that hope is based upon text, ultimately. That's where we know like 98% of what we know about Jesus. It's from the, the text of, of the New Testament, particularly the Gospels and Acts and really all of it. They attest to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as well as to the churches that proliferate in the world of, of, of Palestine and the Mediterranean basin, kind of the known world of the day. And they proliferate in His name and on the basis of what He taught and what he did, what he accomplished. So in this little quick series, I'll just bring you up to date. It's, uh, last week we took an interlude and talked about gratitude and thanksgiving. First, if you recall, we looked at the reliability of the process of manuscript transmission. The book as we know it was not something that existed in the first century. It was scrolls. And so how did the manuscripts get to what we have in our, our Bible today? Is the text that we have 
Can we rely on it to be what the, the original authors wrote? And we saw that we could, that it's, in fact, remarkably reliable, more reliable than most any other ancient text we know of. Secondly, we looked at the question of canon, of whether the books, as we call them, or the documents that compose you know, the, the, the Bibles that we have, are the documents that the early Christians recognized as the ones God wanted in there, the ones that are authentically inspired uh, of God. And so that's what we've done so far. But we need to, to this morning, pursue a third line of, of inquiry. And that is uh, because it's, it's one thing to ascertain that the text was transmitted faithfully and that the works that comprise our modern you know, Bibles are the works we're supposed to have. It's another thing, however, to ask whether the authors of these texts actually knew what they were talking about. You can have a text that's authentic. Oh, that's what the person claimed five generations later. We've still got the right text. It didn't get, you know, mongrelized in the, in the, in the transmission. But it's, it's, it's full of nonsense. That's a different question. So today what we're going to talk about is can we trust that the writers of these documents, particularly the Gospels, but also Acts and the, and the rest of it, Paul the Apostle's writings, did they know what they were talking about? Another way to put this is to say, are, are these reliable witnesses of the events they claim to have witnessed or at least to have known on in, in, in a one-on-one basis, first-hand basis, someone else who witnessed it? Were the New Testament writers reliable witnesses? That's our question today. All right, this, this is, these are nerdy lessons, so I won't judge if you go to sleep. <laughs> Somebody in your life, though, especially if you were being missional, Maybe somebody in your own family is going to have questions like this at some point. I guarantee you. These are out there now. They're viral. They're way more than they used to be 20 years ago. And a lot of nonsense travels under this, this topic, honestly. That even liberal scholars, unbelieving scholars of the Bible say, that's nonsense. Da Vinci Code would be exhibit A in that. Um, based on these other gospels that are supposed to, that are like written 300 years later. And we talked about that already. All right. So what we want to do today is ask this question. Are the New Testament writers reliable witnesses? And I want to look at three questions uh, that are sort of sub-questions under that heading. First of all, are they historically credible? What I mean is, um, are they in a position and of a mentality to sort of, uh, you know, a position to, to observe these things faithfully? Do they have the marks of authenticity when it comes to their trustworthiness, when they talk about the time and place they lived in? And, the, and we need to talk about this because there is a little thread of... of um, lore out there, I'll call it lore because I think that's, that's a, a pretty generous word to use for it, that says things like, well, the Gospels really weren't written until, you know, 300 years later or 200 years later, long after the original eyewitnesses, and they weren't even written by, as some of these hypotheses go, people close to it. They're from a different part of the world, and they just made up stories that reflect more what the early Christian church evolved into thinking than it did what the first original claim was. One way to test that, this idea that they wrote way later in a, from a different place even, than being you know, eyewitnesses, contemporaries of the events they, they, they actually lived among and saw, was to look at their historical and kind of geographical credibility, I guess we could say. And numerous scholarly works have shown that the gospel authors display a kind of familiarity with the time and the place they're dealing with, that they wrote about, that would be necessary for someone to be a trustworthy source about anything. Either they're eyewitnesses or they are individuals who knew eyewitnesses, something really close to it. They have all the marks of that. 
If you didn't prejudice the case by saying, well, they're claiming something crazy, let's, let's table that. That's kind of the question. That's circular reasoning. You can't come into this going, I know miracles and supernatural things don't happen, now let's decide whether supernatural things happened. That's a circular reason, that argument. That's begging the question. It's under consideration. So if you're open-minded enough to consider all possibilities based on evidence, and let's just first of all deal with this kind of mundane question of whether they are historically and geographically credible. I don't have time to go through all the stuff on this. This is a cottage industry of scholarship on this kind of stuff. And it is uber nerdy. I mean, like technical stuff. I'll just do this. A couple of books that I've worked through that I would recommend. One on the left a little lighter and I, I don't think is uh, meaty as the right. Richard Bauckham's is a first, first class nerd work, but really, really good. He's one of my writers, honestly, top three or four. Uh, New Testament scholars, teaches it, or he's, a, he's an emeritus now, but he taught at University of St. Andrews or one of the ones in Scotland, Aberdeen, one of those. And, and the one on the left, Peter J. Williams' little book, he, he goes into like um, things like place names in the four Gospels. All right? And there's 15 or 20 specific place names mentioned in the four Gospels, not just Jerusalem, you know, duh, anybody that knows the world at all is going to. Jerusalem's in Palestine, in the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. But he mentions a whole lot of really arcane villages, and gets uh, they, the, all four Gospels do, and they get all of them right. From what we know about scholarship, these aren't made-up places. Now imagine somebody from France or upstate New York trying to pull off, you know, before the internet, before access to, to modern libraries, let's say maybe 300 years trying to pull off a small village in eastern North Carolina when almost no one from Europe is here yet. Maybe play coats. And, and they're trying to, if you see that word in there, coats, in a bunch of places like that, and then you have a way to verify, you come in, you find out that every one of those is right, they're in the right place, that stuff like that really happened there. Um, you're going to kind of go, well, they kind of seem like they were there. How research this in the ancient world? They're not traveling all, all these peasants that work, you know, the, these fishermen that work in Galilee, they're not traveling all over the place. There's no, there's no Alexandrian library there for them to go to. They can't Google it. So how'd they make this up? By contrast, some of the uh, apocryphal gospels we talked about in a couple lessons ago, Gospel of Thomas and so on, they'll mention either zero places, it just sort of like, they're very different. They're also written two, three hundred years later, and were not recognized as canonical by the earliest Christians. But one of the reasons is they don't have the same feel. They're not mentioning places. It's just sort of vaguely out there. This happened. It's almost like legends long ago and far away. It doesn't matter. You're not trying to locate it with historical particularity. That's the opposite of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, I think one of the Gnostic Gospels, or the Gnostic Gospel, the Gospel of Thomas, one of the other, might, it mentions Jerusalem. Well, that's phoning it in. That's like me saying Rome, if I'm writing a story, trying to act like I went to Italy. I was in Rome. Yeah, yeah, Rome. Why don't you name one of the little tiny villages in the Dolomites? You know, in some gorge in Sicily or something. Uh, it's very different. Greg Boyd has also written uh, extensively on the reliability of Acts. And I want to talk about this for a minute or two. I'm not going to put all these scriptures up on the screen because we, we have a lot to cover today. But Luke's details, Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also continues his story. A lot of people think it was originally one document. Um, he addresses them both to Theophilus and says, here's the methods I use and so on. 
His details match those of non-biblical sources, contemporary, contemporaneous non-biblical sources, with remarkable corroboration. I mean, it's off the chart. And I'll give you just a few of these. There's a I read, 40 pages, uh, just densely textured less essay with just example after example after example. Tons of references to specific places, names, titles, practices, cultural, political, legal practices that all are corroborated by extra-biblical sources. So one of them, remember the really strange account of King Agrippa, uh, of his death in Acts 12? It's real sudden and he dies and worms are eating his insides out. Josephus says a very similar thing. Josephus isn't a Christian. He's writing for a Roman audience. Uh, he's kind of become a de facto Roman after taking on the Romans in a battle earlier in his life. And he, he talks about this event in a very similar way that corroborates that Luke didn't just make this up. Uh, Luke in, in, in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, talks about the great famine that occurred in the days of Claudius, quote unquote. That's also referred to in Josephus. And Josephus isn't trying to back up the Bible. Bible scholars use Josephus because he's an extra biblical source. Um, Luke's identifying of Gallio as the proconsul, this Roman political figure, of Achaia. He was the proconsul of Achaia in modern day Greece. This is in Acts 18 12. That is confirmed by an inscription that was discovered at Delphi. Delphi. People say that. A, a, a Greek city. There's an inscription that says Gal Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. Okay? You can't just read over that anymore and go, well, maybe Luke made that up. Well, if so, somebody made up an inscription at the same time. <laughs> Some pagan in inscribed something that said the same thing. Um, in, Luke, uh, in Acts 25.4, Luke reports of Emperor Claudius' expulsion of the Jews from Rome. This occurred around AD 49. That is referred to in Suetonius, a pagan writer, his life of Claudius. Same exact event. Those two guys aren't talking. They don't have cell phones. Suetonius wouldn't want to talk to Luke, and vice versa probably. And if Luke wanted to talk to him, it would be about Jesus. And uh, there's a reference to, by, by uh, the book of Acts in Acts 24 to Felix, kind of an incidental reference in passing to Felix as the Roman procurator along with his wife Drusilla. That's Acts 24, 24. That is corroborated by, corroborated by the Roman historian Tacitus. It's the same. Felix was the procurator procur at this time. His wife is Drusilla. On and on and on stuff like that goes. That does not sound like somebody who made this up 300 years later who's trying to sound authentic. How would they even know all that stuff? Moreover, classicists, scholars of Greco-Roman antiquity, have noted the remarkable, remarkable accuracy of Luke's accounts of complicated legal procedures legal practices in and between various regions that he deals with. So I have a rather long quote here summing this up by Gregory Boyd. This essay is called, Is the Book of Acts Reliable? And it's, it's really astounding the, the match you get between Luke's account and various other extra-biblical pagan accounts. More impressive than his grasp of major figures and events, however, is Luke's accuracy in recording the various titles of various officials in the mid-first century. Getting these right was difficult, he says, in the very complex and ever-changing political, religious, Greco-Roman world of the first century. In other words, they don't just have it set up once and they never have the titles or the provinces change. That's always in flux. They're kind of making up government as they go along. You know, Rome fall from a republic to an empire and all that. It's, it's in flux all the time, generation by generation. Luke gets it all right for his time. 
say unbelieving scholars. And they're kind of like, whoa, that's kind of crazy. The status of provinces, along with the titles of their officiates, change with some regularity. He still gets it right. Finally, a number of scholars have made a very solid case that Luke's accounts of the very diverse regions he's concerned with is altogether accurate. Luke's references to the nature of Roman citizenship, to Roman, Greek, and Jewish judicial procedures, to the right to appeal to Caesar, the various relationships between magistrates of various states and between cities of various sizes, etc., all square with what we know about Roman law in the first century. If he was astute enough to catch should be if he were, but whatever. If he was astute enough to catch the right titles of, I'm just kidding, pedantic, um, right titles of various officials, we cannot readily write off his narratives of, say, Peter and Paul as being of little historical value. You can't just say, well, they, they don't, they're not historically credible. And it looks like they are. You may not like what they're claiming. That's a different matter. We'll get to that in a minute. If he's demonstrably accurate in his recording of various legal proceedings in various locales, we cannot quickly dismiss his record that the early church was, from the start, united in its proclamation that Jesus was the Son of God who was crucified and rose again from the dead. All right. So that's, that's a little stab at looking at historical reliability. So these writers appear to have firsthand experience, or at least know people who are totally firsthand experience, firsthand witnesses of these events and places and people and procedures and phenomena socially, culturally, politically that they write about. But did, ha, did they have the kind of psychological credibility that's necessary for trustworthiness? Psycho, I don't know what else to call this other than psychological credibility. So we need to address... A, a, a certain hypothesis or certain kinds of hypotheses that argue that these people should be discredited on precisely such grounds. That the writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the writer of Acts, and so on, the Apostle Paul, all of these people should not be listened to. They're not trustworthy because of certain theories that would discredit them kind of on the level of uh, their ability to perceive things. So one of these is just the, 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 the sort of bald statement that they were mistaken. It's not the most sophisticated argument. Um, it, it's pretty much, he appeared to be dead but wasn't. This is called the swoon theory sometimes. He swooned, he didn't die. Um, I don't think a whole lot of people give this much credence. N.T. Wright responds to this by saying this. Roman soldiers knew how to kill people, especially rebel kings. They did it all the time. Crucified people by the thousands. Jesus wasn't the only person crucified. That was just the main way they had for saying, you lose. Caesar runs the world. You upstart insurrectionist, you're going to lose. You're going to be erased. They did it all the time. Jewish people knew how to tell the, people, the difference between people who were dead and people who were injured. That's not rocket science. We're not even going to spend much time on that because usually scholars don't. Another one is the hallucination hypothesis. The disciples only thought they saw the resurrected Jesus. They experienced some sort of hallucination. Well, hallucinations happen. There, you know, people get detached from reality in their perception. That's not as ridiculous. But it does require um, there to have been several hallucinations at different times. Because the, Bible, the, the, the gospel records these, of these historically reliable people are reporting that several people, lots of different people, believe they had seen the same Jesus who was executed and dead as a doornail walking and talking 
and eating and doing things like that. He was very transformed. He was different. But he was bodily alive again. That's the claim by several people. That's what they experienced. And so it would have had to have been numerous hallucinations. All right, that, that begins to sort of go, all right, that, that sounds a little ridiculous. Not only that, there would have had to have been some sort of mass hallucination. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, we read that in verse 6, he appeared to over 500 brethren at once. So now we've got multiple hallucinations at different times, and then 500 people hallucinate together. So not the best argument. Moreover, the tomb was found empty. What's the quickest way to dispel the fiction? If, if people sincerely believe something that you know it's to be false and you're trying to keep it from getting off the ground, what do you do? Here's the corpse. There's no corpse. The tomb's empty. That's the record. That's what they claim to have witnessed. Another idea is that they, maybe they made it up. They, they weren't mistaken, but they just made it up. It's an actual fabrication. It's the hoax hypothesis. It's often, that's the term it travels under very often. So maybe, so, so goes the argument, the followers of Jesus who were so dejected by his crucifixion, they had such high hopes and now he's dead, they so badly wanted him to be their Messiah. They so badly longed for him to be their king that they created this elaborate tale of his resurrection. So it's just a hoax. They know it to be false, but they just can't bear it to be otherwise. So they're perpetrating something they know to be not true. Sort of an inside secret. There are several problems with this that are really deal breakers when it comes down to it. First of all, this hoax would have been very dead on arrival in the world of the first century. Because who are they elevating to be the king and the messiah? Someone who was crucified. And we've got to go back to the then and there of, the, of, of, of 2,000 years ago and not imagine what we think of with the, what a cross means and what Christianity means. Crucifixion nowadays, after about 2,000 years of Christianity's massive spread and the cultural uh, clout and respect that it has in many quarters, um, it has a very different connotation than the cross would have had in the ancient world. There's this famous quote by Cicero, a Roman writer. The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It is unworthy of a Roman citizen. Don't even think about it or talk about it. Okay? Because it's, it's scandalous. Paul even uses the word scandal to talk about the cross. He said, we realize we're in Galatians talking about the scandal of the cross. Like that's the, the bedrock of our, of our movement. Something which is scandalous culturally and socially. One of the earliest pictorial renderings of Jesus is a really sad one. You can't really make it out very well. This, this, this was scratched on the wall of some chamber uh, in the Palatine, Palatine Hill in Rome. And I've got a line drawing that shows us what it, it actually says. This is a donkey being crucified. And the inscription reads, Alexamenos, that was obviously some Christian, some devotee in the early 2nd century, so we're talking the 100s, is worshiping his God. How telling is it about the stigma the cross had that one of the earliest renderings of, Christi of Christianity pictorially is a mockery of the idea that you can have a God who was crucified. 
a Messiah, a king who was crucified. So we might go, well, you could, just, you could start this cool story and this Christianity thing would get off the ground and they'd be real, pro- you know, they know better, but they're, they're going to become prominent. They're not going to become prominent. They're going to get crucified or persecuted. And they're trying to launch it based on a claim that would have been self-discrediting in that world. People didn't wear crosses on their necks back then. Right? What made the cross go from scandal to glorious is the spread of Christ- the success of Christianity. But that's 2,000 years later. So just to try to analogize this to something today, imagine that somebody, you know, you know how we uh, tragically, weakly now hear of a mass shooting. We're just losing our ability to be scandalized by that. Every week, sometimes, what was it, three or four, right before Thanksgiving? There's just, it, it, imagine a convicted school shooter. He goes in with multiple weapons and magazines, several magazines of ammunition, just to premeditatedly mow down teachers, administrators, workers, and little kids. Convicted genocidal school shooter, and somebody says, we got this movement starting. Who's your leader? That guy that was on the news the other day that shot all those people. Let's follow him. That's how scandalous a crucified person was. Think of that. It's not glorious and what a noble sufferer. That's only after the resurrection. It's the opposite of glory. It's inglorious. That's why Rome did it. They they beheaded people that that were citizens that needed to be capitally punished. So we've got to not just think about it in our terms and think about it in the way they would have thought about it. Moreover, in that world, the world of the first century, trying to get a hoax like this off the ground that relies on the testimony of women to relay the central claim of its authenticity, the resurrection, would have been foolhardy. And yet that's exactly what we read happened. Um, I'm going to skip that one. Back to the scandal of the cross, Paul says, the word of the cross, he says he knows it, is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. This made no sense in the ancient world to have a crucified God, a crucified Messiah. And then the the reason it turns out to make sense is because that crucified one rises again on the third day. And in Matthew's account, that was read earlier, that Charlie read earlier, I want you to notice this. It's very woman-oriented in the sense that the whole thing is contextualized by women coming to the tomb. Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, he says to these women, and tell his male disciples that he has risen from the dead and behold is going before you to Galilee where you will see him. See, I have told you. Told who? The men? No, women. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. This week, oh, that's, that's whatever. No, no, no. This is a world in which women are not allowed to testify in court. They're deemed so non-credible. In a synagogue quorum, to have a quorum for a synagogue, it had to be so many males, not women. 
Do you know how radical it is for Jesus to entrust the very heart, the bedrock event of the whole thing, the resurrection, to women? If you're trying to pull a hoax off, this is the way you don't do it in that world. I mean, people have called Mary Magdalene the apostle to the apostles. She's the one sent to the ones who would be sent. What if nobody believes it? What if it was powerful enough to be believed even with the stigma that women were given culturally in the first century? How do you, how much sense does it make to, to make the linchpin event of your whole story, which is the resurrection, hang on the testimony of people whose testimony was scorned? Just as a categorical, you know, uh, categorically non-viable source of testimony. An even thornier problem for the hoax theory in terms of psychological motivation is that it would require us to believe that these disciples would have risked their lives for something that they knew to be a lie. I mean, think about it. People martyr themselves all the time. That's not that odd. It, it can be noble or depending on the side you're on, like, oh, evil. Right? But pe people who believe in something that strongly will sometimes die for it. Find somebody who dies for something they don't really believe in. Hey, we made this up, but we're going to die for it now. That's psychologically, if you don't have some, you know, axe to grind or already have made your mind up, that's just psychologically untenable. Let's be real. That's not going to work in any other conversation. Now, you may not want this to be true. You may not like the, the sort of moral implications and demands that it involves or something like that. That's a different matter. Just be man or woman enough to say that. Don't act like that makes sense psychologically in any other conversation, any other issue. Because prior to the resurrection, of course, these disciples were hardly ready to put their lives on the line. Not at all. When the going got tough for Jesus, they abandoned him. We always think of Peter, you know. He denied Jesus when, to save his own hide. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him with cursing. Because he knows the Romans are winning right now. They just arrested him. There's soldiers everywhere. It wasn't just Peter, though. We read in Mark uh, 14.50 that upon Jesus' arrest, all his disciples deserted him and ran away. They see the writing on the wall. They're not boldly in or defending him or espousing him at all when he's about to be arrested and then crucified. Paul also, in Acts 26 before Agrippa, says that he once convinced himself that he ought to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus. He thought he was an imposter. But notice the change after the resurrection. We find these same individuals who were fleeing like mice. You know, roaches when you turn the light on. Not in our house now, if you want to come over. But <laughs> Back when we lived in our Florida apartment, yes. Can you spray again? They sprayed next door. Can you spray again? You sprayed next door to them. You know, it's like, uh, 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 uh. I mean, I'd come in. I needed a 410. You know, <laughs> these were like huge. You could have. There was probably a lot of protein in those guys. <laughs> Put them on a spit. We could have had a meal. But like just fleeing. You know, they're they're scared to death. They're gone. That's before the resurrection. And then after the resurrection, we find the apostles in situations like this, being threatened. For, you're going to be jailed, maybe killed. The Jewish authorities, backed by the Roman authorities, 
calls the apostles. They beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, Acts 5 says, verse 41, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That sounds very different than on the night of Jesus' arrest, right? And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that this Christ is Jesus. That Messiah we've been waiting for in our scriptures for so many centuries, it's Jesus of Nazareth. Peter goes from, I don't know who you're talking about, to I cannot help but tell this truth, do what you will. Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 says, I thank God, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. You are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Why? Because they identified with the cross. That's why. This same Paul who was once persecuting Jesus and his followers. What happened? James, the brother of the Lord, early on was a skeptic. Remember John 7, 5, his brothers all say, go, go tell people in Jerusalem, nut job. That's what they're saying. They think he's beside himself, it says. They think he's whacked. And then in Acts 15, we find James, the brother of the Lord, an elder in the church of Jerusalem, one of the leaders of the church. He's presiding over the Jerusalem council, which is pivotal theologically as the gospel transitions from just Jews to the whole world. The legend says, historical lore says that James, he was called James the Just, that he died with great calluses on his knees for pray, because he prayed so often. And history tells us that James, Paul, Peter, many others were killed, killed for espousing Christianity. So on grounds merely of their historical and geographical and psychological credibility, accepting these claims would, would probably be a slam dunk, honestly. N.T. Wright says, What historical investigation of the Gospels can do is to clear away the overgrown thickets of misunderstanding, misreading, sheer bad history, and sometimes willful obfuscation in order that the main texts of the Gospels can be allowed to say what they are saying. And the main questions may stand out in their stark simplicity. In other words, don't make it about textual transmission and canonicity and are they, are they check, 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 check. What they're saying, unfortunately for you, if you're a skeptic, is what you're afraid they're saying. That something crazy happened. That's what they're saying. To be people, you know, like we all are. Historical investigation, he continues, brings us to the point where we must say that the tomb previously housing a thoroughly dead Jesus was empty and that his followers saw and met someone they were convinced was this same Jesus, bodily alive though in a new transformed fashion. Now notice this last sentence or two after the ellipsis there. Were it not for the astounding and worldview challenging <laughs> claim that is thereby made, I think everyone would long since have concluded that this was the correct historical result. What they say they saw, they must have seen. 
If some other account explained the rise of Christianity as naturally, completely, and satisfyingly as does the early Christians' belief, while leaving normal worldviews intact, it would be accepted without demur, without delay. It would be a slam dunk. But that brings up our final point. This is just going to be a suggestion or two, not really a point. But this is really what we should be left with. This question of, they do make an extraordinary claim. And this is the claim that has to be dealt with. So is it philosophically credible that the gospel claims could be true? It is an extraordinary claim. Let's get one thing out of it. There's a falsehood that has some currency that I think is really silly, uh, that shows a lot of historical ignorance, honestly. It says something like this. Well, people back then, be leery of any time somebody starts a sentence about history by saying people back then. People? All of them? Like, what if somebody said, people today think, what? Fill in that. There's no way you're going to make an accurate sentence now. Because all you got to do, all I got to do is go, I found 47 people who don't do that. People back then are as big and diverse as we are today. People back then. What do you know about people back then? Well, this, this idea is that people back then commonly believe stuff like that. They just were kind of dumb. You know, they didn't have science, so... Before science, nobody ever had any kind of empirical sense. That's ridiculous. They didn't believe things like this. They knew, just like we do, that people don't rise from the dead. They knew babies weren't conceived without a man involved. Remember, remember Joseph's response when he's told by the angel, Mary's your, your, your betrothed, your fiancé is pregnant? Chill, it's good. Holy Spirit. He's like, what? Why didn't he just go, well, yeah, we're, we're ancient people and we're also superstitious and weird things happen. We believe in fantasy novels and stuff. So we're just going to, hey, who cares? No, he's trying to put her away and hide her because he thought just like you and I do. And when Thomas, one of the twelve, hears from the others who've already seen the resurrected Jesus, and he hasn't had the privilege yet to get empirical evidence, they say, We've seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see. Sounds like a modern scientist. Put it in the test tube, let's see. Unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Jesus presents him with that opportunity. He puts his hand in the side, he sees him, and he says, my Lord and my God. But before that, he wants empirical evidence like, like we do. That's a silly argument. Some of the twelve, even after seeing Jesus, doubt. They're like, this is, this is hard to believe. I'm seeing you right now, but I don't know. This doesn't happen. They're worshiping him, but some are doubting. So they're just like we are in this way. Nevertheless, folks, it is the claim of the early Christians. It is the claim of the four Gospels and Acts and the Pauline epistles. Something out of this world happened. And it not only changed history, but it is this very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that becomes in their minds, and in the, the, the mind of the documents that we have in our New Testament, <clears throat> becomes the very fulcrum on which the whole, in their view, true story of the world hinges. And everybody has to decide what to make of this story and its fundamental claims. 
You, you don't get off that as easy as saying, I, I, they're not historically credible, they're not psychologically credible. That doesn't work. You're going to have to say, I don't, I don't agree with the claim. A lot's at stake, right? Everything's at stake. You, you're, the Lord leaves you to make that decision. All people have to decide what to make of this story and its claims. But when you're deciding, let me encourage you to be honest with yourself. And be honest with your own motives. And ask yourself, which story best accounts? Which worldview out there? There's a lot of competing ones. Which one of them best accounts for everything around us and everything inside us? The beauty and the brutality of this world. The Bible addresses that. It's a masterpiece, but it's a marred masterpiece. How do you get that way? Our hopes and dreams, but also our fears and failures. Where does it come from? What about all those innate, universal human longings for justice and goodness and beauty and truth? Those will not die, those longings, will they? Despite the fact that we all inhabit a world that continually frustrates them day after day after day. And every generation that's born is like, that's the way it should be. Where did we get that from? What a weird thing. The world's awful in many ways. And yet we're like, it shouldn't be that way. How do you account for that sense, that universal sense of should and ought? And justice. There should be justice. Why? When the lion eats the wildebeest... It's just molecules. This all got here somehow. You can't just say, we're just going to start with what it is. You can, but that's punting. It got here somehow, and we all know that. Nothing else that exists that's beautiful and complicated just got here. So what, you, you've got to decide what to do with that. And the gospel claims to explain it all, the good and the bad, and it promises to transform it all through the very power of those events that the gospel writers talk about. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. It's going to transform the whole cosmos. It's going to transform all the people who accept it. Praise God for that. I hope this has been helpful in some way. This is more, these series of lessons are more like something I wanted to put kind of as a you know, a repository of, of nerdy resources with book titles and things in case you run into that. We're going to meet people if we're, if we're going out, if we're talking, if we're engaging people, we're going to run into these kinds of questions. And we've certainly not answered them all. Well, this has been a, a superficial, I promise you, um, sort of framing of these issues as best I can in three lessons. So thank you for your attention. Um, if you're here today and subject to the Lord's invitation, if you want to come to him to become a, a Christian, a follower, the rest of the Great Commission says what? Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So we become followers of Jesus, and that, that relationship with Him is inaugurated at the point of baptism. We're prepared to help you with that, or study with you, or uh, just share your struggles with you, whatever it is. We're not perfect. We're just trying to follow the one that we believe is. Thank you for your attention. Let's all stand together and sing.